Hello and welcome back. This is going to be chapters 20 and 21 of Wayward. We did have quite a long chapter last time, so last episode was just chapter 19. But a lot of stuff happened in that. Michaela learned how to astral travel and found that she's actually quite good at it. And yet when she tried to astral project sort of accidentally to her parents' house, she was only there a short time before being forced away by some sort of unknown entity or force. Um, and Hopefully we'll, we'll soon discover what that may have been and, and why it may have prevented her from going there. Concept warning for this episode. It does include um, a sex scene which technically takes place between minors. Um, so be warned for that. I have cut out quite a large chunk of it because obviously uh, I wasn't sure that reading the full sex scene in the book would be within the content guidelines for YouTube. So um, it is it has been heavily redacted. Um, so hopefully that shouldn't be a problem. However, this is a slightly longer episode of the podcast than normal. Um, I think sort of around the 50 minute mark because the two chapters were so long and because they kind of lead directly into each other. I didn't want to um, break up the episode. But then in the second part of the episode, chapter 21, we do get quite a lot of dark content. Uh, so I'm going to warn for gore. I'm going to warn for graphic depiction of violence and descriptions that some viewers may find disturbing. Chapter 20. In the morning I can't face the others, so I stay in the bathroom and hide. For a while Cray hangs around, but him being there only makes me feel awkward, so in the end I ask him to leave. There isn't anything to do in the bathroom, not really. A few games of patience have me lying down on the bed in boredom. I take out my notebook, my grimoire, and flick through it. There are my first notes, squidged up small like I was embarrassed, Writing about magic, chakras, raising energy, the blinding hex, conjuring powder, invoking the fae. It goes on and on. I get my pen and open to a new page. In clear letters, I write out what happened to me on the astral, my travels and the terrifying end to them. While I'm making my notes, I can't help but think about my parents. The house had looked so sad without its decorations, without the path being swept. Mum looked so thin and stressed. Dad so sad and slumped. It was almost like they were missing me. Maybe they had been all along. Maybe, after that horrible phone call, they'd forgiven me. If I'd gone home weeks ago, I might have been welcomed back. For a moment, I think of going there with Cray. Perhaps they'd like him and help him get back into school or find a job. I close my book and squeeze the covers together. No, it's stupid to think they'd ever tolerate me being with Cray. But I still want to see them. But the memory of that horrible noise, the sudden blindness, has me scared to go back to the house. I stuff the book back into my bag and reluctantly go downstairs. Cray is on the sofa reading a library book. The only other person in the room is Ilex, asleep on the floor cushions, with the mostly empty vodka bottle next to him. Hey, feeling better? Cray asks. Not really. I sit down next to him and he puts the book to one side. I'm sorry things weren't so badly last night. I don't know why. Maybe the circle wasn't strong enough. It's hard, keeping one up on your own. Maybe. Cray sighs. Truthfully, I don't know what happened. It worries me. You could have been really hurt. It threw me out of there before I could find out what was going on with them. Mum was writing something for the newspaper. I think it was about me. I look up at him. I think they really miss me. They want me to come home. I can't miss the anxious guilt in Cray's eyes. You should go then. But you're here. Michaela. I wouldn't be able to see you anymore. I'd come and see you, if you wanted. But it would be different. I, My parents threw me out once. I don't know if I can trust them to. Not again. I trust you. What if I go back and they make me leave and you're not here? Where would I go? I wrap my arms around myself. There's the other coven in Bristol. What if you get sent there? Sent? Crow frowns. It's a choice to leave here. 
just like it's a choice to never come back, like you all choose to not visit there. There's nothing to worry about. If you, if you want to go there, we can. If you want to go and see your parents, we can do that now. I squirm, too scared to say yes, too hopeful to say no. I want to see them. I'm just scared of what they'll say. I'm scared of what will happen when I go back to school and people ask me where I've been. What if they act like Chloe? What if they all think I'm dirty or that I did tons of drugs and picked up a disease? I can't tell them about any of this. They'll think I'm crazy. And I won't have you or any of you guys with me. I'll be all alone. You can handle people like Chloe. You're strong. Stronger now you have magic on top of that. You can always come and see us or meet us anywhere. My parents will be keeping an eye on me though. There's no way I'll be able to get away. Cray took a deep breath and let it out in a long gust. I know I'm being selfish, I say. I've got a chance to go home and I'm putting up all these obstacles. That's not what's bothering me, Cray says. I'm worried that you won't go home because of me. I love you and I'll do anything to stay with you here, but it's only been a few months. They're your parents. If they love you and want you to come back, you should go. And you don't know if in a year or so you'll be sick of me or we'll be turfed out of here by the police or... It might happen again, something like before with Raleigh. We don't know. It might be too late for you by then to go back to school to have a life with parents that love you. If it was you, would you go? Cray swallows, looks down for a second, then nods. I'd feel terrible, but if there was a way I could be home again, if my parents would be different, better, I'd go back. You could make that happen, I say. He shakes his head. You can't use magic to make someone love you. He looks so alone, and I feel so far away from him all of a sudden. Somewhere inside, I know my parents love me. I've known the whole time. They might have been buried under fear and shame and anger, but I'd known they couldn't hate me. Not really. Cray, though. I can tell from the curve of his shoulders as he slumps that he knows all the way to the pit of his stomach his parents don't love him. Maybe that's true and maybe it isn't, but he believes it. You have to go, Cray says. I don't want to be what holds you back and this wayward. It's not for forever. We can't do this forever. I mean, can you see me and Ilex still bitching at each other when we're 50, living on pot noodles and still using magic to sneak onto the buses when we're old enough for free passes? I know he's right. There's no way we can do this forever. We might always have magic, but I can't imagine still sleeping on the floor and glamouring myself clothes when I'm 50. Will I keep making myself look like I am now? 16 forever? I'll never get back to school or go to uni or have children. I'm not sure I want any of those things, but I want to be able to choose. I think I need to go home, I say quietly. Cray nods. I can feel him pulling away from me, retreating into himself. I'm not going today, I say. I can't just go. I need to know you're safe. Safe? Of course I'm safe. There's something really not right about the other coven. I'm not leaving you here until we know what it is. And there's that ritual you all did. It made you all act like zombies. I'm worried about you. Michaela, you can't keep making excuses up not to see your parents. That's not what I'm doing, I snap, and close my eyes for a second and get control of myself. Okay, maybe that's part of it. I'm scared of seeing them, but I'm also scared that something will happen to you when I'm gone. All right, tomorrow we'll go visit the Bristol Coven, but tomorrow night I'm putting you on a bus and you are going home. Deal? My heart goes tight in my chest. Deal. Okay, he says, losing his decisiveness and looking down at his hand. I know it's probably stupid if you're leaving and with what happened last night, but your surprise is meant to be tonight. Tonight? What is it? I feel a leap of excitement, quickly stuffed back down by the knowledge that this will be our last night together. We can still go, Cray says, brightening. It's not until tonight. Late. Yes, that's... We should. I want to. But until then, can we please get Nara's books and find out exactly what that ceremony is for? 
If it'll make you feel better, yes. But I'm telling you, Sophia designed the whole thing to protect the coven. I don't contradict him, but I want those books and I need to know exactly what the ritual does. I can't leave Cray at Wayward if he might be in danger. In the kitchen, I boil water on Campion's stove. She'd found a new canister somewhere, dusty as hell and slightly rusty, and make cups of instant coffee. Cray carries Nara's books on witchcraft out of their corner, along with several classical language dictionaries. You look up whatever you remember of the ritual words. You've heard it more than me, I say, as we sit down by the glowing statue, basking in the dry heat. I saw something about body parts, hair and stuff, in one of these books. I get to work hunting down the paragraph that I know I flipped past yesterday. Cray looks through the dictionaries with perhaps less enthusiasm. I know he doesn't feel the way I do about the ritual. He trusts Sophia completely. I only wish that I could. But the force that threw me back from my parents has me scared. There's so much I don't know about the magic the coven uses. Glamours and healing potions are one thing, but the ritual felt like something else, something deeper and much older. I find the lines after searching through a few thick books. My eyes are tired and my frustration is getting better of me when I stop short, reading the key phrases again aloud for Cray's benefit. Blood, hair or any part of the body can be used to great effect in magical workings. They represent personal power, the self and the life force of the witch. For this reason, these resources are to be guarded and used wisely. As well as being used by the witch, these magical ingredients can be used against him or her, often to bind them to the will of another or to make them the target of a particular spell. That doesn't mean anything, Cray says. There are a lot of reasons to use those things. It as good as says so. It could represent our personal power going into the protection spell. But listen to this part. Hair from the head of the witch is linked closely with the element of air, and so with thoughts and inspiration. Blood is the life force part, the personal power. Like in my initiation, you gave her your hair at the ritual last time and she's keeping it in that locket. So? Cray doesn't say it unkindly, but it's as if he's genuinely puzzled. So maybe that's why you're all so weird and blank right after the ritual. You gave Sophia your thoughts. Cray frowns, looks down at the dictionary and flips a few pages over, stopping with his fingers splayed over on the page. Cogitationum. What? Thoughts. It's thoughts in Latin. It's one of the words I can remember. I swallow and glance at the stairs, feeling my heart leap into a spike pit when I see Sophia standing there. Cray turns and sees her too, his hands slowly flip the book closed. Sophia! Hey! We need to do the ritual tonight, she says. There's a threat coming. I've seen it. I'll tell the others when they get back, Cray says. Good. You and Stone can form the circle before dark. She goes back upstairs, and Cray is still until the door to her room closes. He takes the book from my hands, stacks it with the others, and takes it back to the corner. Cray. It's fine. Leave it with me. We can't just pretend we don't know. We don't know, Cray says. Just leave it and it'll be okay. I don't want to leave it and I definitely don't want to go to that ritual. But if Cray is going, there's no way I'm leaving him alone. The last time I didn't have to give any of my hair for Sevilla's locket. And I'm hoping that this time will be the same. I'm still not fully trained, but Cray is. And I don't know if I can stand to watch him hand over a piece of himself to a girl I don't trust. As we gather in the garden, I know what to expect. Cray and I have brought out the pile of stones from where they've been stored under the stairs. Hard to find the mystical when you've seen them stuck next to a broken Dyson. The coffee table is in the centre, the wooden box and the metal bowl. The circle of three black stones and two green crystals are the same. Sophia stands before us and reads her chant through a few times. The rising and falling of the strange language lifts the hair on my arms. I might be further into my craft studies, but the cold power of her voice still frightens me. It's grown colder over the past month, but still the chill that enters the circle is obvious. My breath streams out in a cloud, but once more everyone else seems unaffected. I look at all of them in turn. They're not breathing icy breath. Not breathing at all. 
Something white on Nara's headscarf catches my eye. Frost. Crystals of frost forming on the folds in the fabric. I look at Campion and see white frost creeping over her collar. It's on all of us, but I'm the only one that shivers. Maybe they're used to it, but the twist in my stomach says something else is going on. Something much, much stranger than a tolerance for the cold. Sophia ignites the paper and places it in the bowl, adding a lock of her own hair. She passes the manicure scissors to Ilex, and I watch as he cuts some of his hair and places it in the lid of the box. The campion goes next, then the scissors pass to Cray, and he reaches up. The scissors snick, and he puts some of his hair on the box. Well, it looks like his hair. I think I'm the only one who saw him take a tuft of something dark from where it had been tucked into the collar of his shirt. I can hardly keep my eyes off of him for the rest of the ritual. He remains focused on Sophia, on the centre of the circle. I watch her empty last month's hair into the fire, winding up the new coils into the locket. My heart is in my throat. Surely she will notice the ritual isn't complete. But she keeps chanting. The weight of cold power presses down in a final spiteful punch to my lungs, and then it is gone. Sophia closes the circle and we walk away from the stones towards the house. Sophia goes upstairs, and just as it did last time, dead silence reigns in the living room. Everyone looks grey and drawn. There are blackberry dark bags under Campion's eyes, and Ilex could almost be a corpse. I jump as Cray's hand touches mine. Looking at him, I see that what he has done, putting some kind of fake hair forward for the ritual, has scared him. His eyes are afraid, begging for me to say nothing about it. Whatever he's done, he doesn't trust the others, only me. Does that mean I can't trust them either? What happened to them since we stepped into the circle? Was I right? Is Sophia controlling them somehow, stealing their thoughts? Cray squeezes my hand, then gives me a gentle shove towards the sofa, and disappears up the stairs. The message is clear. We can't talk now. I leave Cray alone for as long as I can stand it. The others have all gone upstairs to their own rooms, pale and silent. I have to know what's going on. When I get upstairs and into the bathroom, I see how tense he is, tapping a finger to his lips. He takes a crystal from a box on the shelf by the sink. Come on, or we'll be late, he says, offering his hand and pulling me off the bed. What? You're surprised, remember? But Cray doesn't let me argue. He pulls me along, out of the bedroom, and down into the front room. We climb out the window and I go along with him down the grassy slope and through the tiny village where everyone seems to be asleep. We hurry up the darkened drive like curious mice, jogging towards the cool white lights of the university campus. All the time my mind is working over the ritual, Cray's deception, wondering if even now Sophia is holding her locket and realising that she's been tricked. I crackle with excitement and fear. Cray leads me along the road, past deserted buildings filled with empty, lit-up classrooms, and toward the furthest building out, the Union, from which I can already hear a baseline thumping. What is it? The Yule Ball, the end of year party. It's so weird to be standing with him in the dark, on the icy pavement, talking about a party. Not one hour ago, we were in a circle, surrounded by icy ancient power. Now there's Kesha, and the sounds of whooping from just behind the last building. Just trust me, Cray mutters as we approach the building. There's a girl at a table in front of the door, checking student IDs and taking money. I pull invisibility around myself like a wet sheet. I feel Cray do the same beside me. The girl doesn't look up as we pass her, entering the building and hitting a wall of sound as the music pulses. The lights in the tiny entryway are bright fluorescence, but beyond the glass doors there's darkness, interrupted by pinpricks of light cast from a revolving lamp on the dance floor. I think you look fine, but you might want to go for something a bit more dressy. I focus and draw up some energy. The glamour feels like a tight lycra catsuit being dragged up from my feet, bunching on my thighs and tummy. My baggy hoodie is still there somewhere, but it's been ironed out, pushed around into a short black dress. My leggings have thinned down into silky tights, and my high tops have been sculpted into bright pink heels. I've done a total airbrush job on my face, and my hair is longer and silkier than I could ever hope for naturally. 
Impressive, Cray says with a grin. He's done some glamouring himself. A rock t-shirt, white blazer, black skinny jeans and a pink streak in his hair to match my own. Still not quite in your league, I mumble, blushing as we go through the glass doors and towards the dance floor. Cray smiles. Dance with me. Cray, what are we doing here? Joining the party. We turn together under the swirling, snowy dusting of light, with the music pulsing and the chatter from the dancing students surrounding us. The last party I've been to was Chloe's 16th, where I'd had three Bacardi breezes and ended up sitting alone on the stairs, while Chloe got groped by Andrew Fletcher in her bedroom, and Tasha got off with Errol Thompson and his sister Cleo in the living room. I spent a lot of time alone at parties. Now I'm in the centre of it all. This is the coolest party I've ever been to, and I can't enjoy any of it, with the fear of Sophia hanging over my head. I take Cray's hand, and the fast, angry music cuts out, replaced by Maroon 5 playing quietly. Cray pulls me close and I rest my head under his chin. We turn slowly, dancing in the middle of a bunch of confused students. The starry spotlight somehow finds us, shining through a bunch of mistletoe suspended over the crowd on a ribbon. I smile against Cray's collarbone and feel him swallow as I squeeze my arms around him. This is really nice, I whisper. Cray kisses me on the forehead. I think so too. It's the best night of my life, which I think he already knows. Maybe it's even a great night for him too. He's here with me. The girl with two hot friends. Michaela in the middle. Cray. We'll talk about it later, he says softly, right against my ear so no one can hear but me. I remember that Sophia is the astral projecting pro in the coven, that she could be here right now. Ghost walking through the dancing couples. A chill goes down my spine. I try to do as Cray asks, pushing Sophia and the ritual out of my mind, and focusing on the music, the feel of Cray's heartbeat so close to me. I'm in love, and for tonight I am beautiful. This is everything I have ever wanted, so I try to be happy as we dance. The music plays on, and we never let go of each other, even as it grows late and other people start to stagger away, back to their tiny dorm rooms that probably still reek of hairspray and aftershave. The temporary glamour, man-made and incomplete, is fading, hair coming uncurled or frizzing out, stains on their shirts, their feet blistered in new shoes. Cray and I turn slowly under the mistletoe, noses almost touching. It's only when the music stops and the lights go out that I realise the party is over. We are two invisible witches hiding from our coven leader, and all of my fears come back. Cray takes a step back from me and fishes a small piece of quartz crystal out of his pocket. He traces a rune on it with his finger. I feel the circle snap into place around us, though it feels different to a normal circle. My circles, and the ones we cast for rituals, usually feel warm and appear golden in my mind. This one is a low bluish purple, and it crackles with white energy. It feels heavier and thicker around us. It's a special circle I cast for us to use if we wanted to, you know, without Ilex or someone else spying. Cray is ducking his head. And were we in the light, I knew I'd be able to see him blush. I put it in this crystal, ready to use, just in case. She won't be able to hear us. Or see us, if I've done it right. The original circle was drawn out and traced with herbs for concealment and secrecy. From the outside, it should look like a mirror, reflecting everything back on anyone trying to sneak in. So you think there's a good reason to hide this from her? Cray sighs. I don't know, just... If what you read is true, and what I heard tonight is right... Here, look. He reaches into his blazer and pulls out a library ticket, on which he's hastily scrawled words and one-word definitions. These are all words in Latin, Greek, Sanskrit, maybe some more languages that we don't have the books for. This one, elenkas, means control. I showed you the Latin for thoughts, and that could be coincidental, just part of the languages she's put together. But this one... He points to a word on the page, which frankly looks like gibberish. That's ancient Greek. I only know it because I've seen it written down, back when I did classics and all the shit at school. It means servitude. Absolute servitude. Like slavery. 
My stomach is in knots and Cray's face is tense in the shadows. The circle crackers around us. I can feel the weight of it in the air. Sophia used a ritual to make them her slaves. I don't know. I'd have to see the whole ritual translated, but I can't see any other way she'd use that word. Not in a protection spell. It's not the kind of thing you say to the elements or to a deity. Not if you don't want to be ignored or punished. Do we tell the others? I ask. I don't know, Chris says. I barely believe it, and I'm the one saying it. I don't know if it's something she's done to us, but I can feel my brain trying to reject it, telling me I've got it wrong. Maybe I'm just being fucking paranoid. And if you're not then we could all be in danger. From Sophia. If she's trying to control us, if she is controlling us, we don't know why or what she wants. We don't know how much she could get us to do. I tried to think back over the past weeks. Had I noticed Cray being strange at all? Anything weird that didn't seem to fit with what I knew of him? I'm scared, and he takes my hand. You have to come with me when I go, I say. I'm not going otherwise. Michaela, you're leaving, he says. You have a life to get back to. But they're my friends and they don't have anywhere else to go. I can't just leave them. I can't just leave them to it and go off on my own. They could be in serious danger and I'd be leaving them to fend for themselves. A flush creeps over my face. I'm at once angry and ashamed. I'm sorry, I didn't think. I know you're worried. I am too. Truthfully, when I came upstairs and found you like that, after you'd been on the astral, I was terrified. But I'm not going to let you put yourself in danger. They were my friends first and I brought you into this. That makes it my fault, my mistake to fix. No, I blink, unable to believe that the word came out of my mouth, but it had, and it does again. No, I'm not going to leave. Michaela. No, I understand, they're your friends and you have to stay and help them. But I care about them too, and I care about you. My life, my parents. It's important and I know how much it means to you, me going back. But this is part of my life too. You got me into this, but you're not getting me out. We are getting everyone out. All of us. I can see Cray thinking it through, turning it over and trying to find a way to fight me on it. But he can't win and he knows it. For the first time in my life, I've put my foot down. I'm not going to be pushed around, pushed out, because someone thinks they know what's good for me. Or because it's what they want. I'm not going to run away. Whatever it is, whatever she's hiding, it's at the other coven, I say, when Cray stays silent. You all know where it is, but you never go there. She must be controlling you to keep you away. If no one comes back, it must be dangerous, and we don't know what she'll do to us if we find out what's going on there, Cray says. We'll have to be on our guard, but yeah, I guess it'll be dangerous. I don't like the idea of you going there, Cray says. You don't have to like it, but I'm going with you. Cray nods, clearly not happy, but knowing he can't stop me. Cray, he looks up at me. I take his hand awkwardly. Before we go, can we... I mean, that's what this night is about, right? Making it special. He blinks, eyes widening. We don't have to, it was just an idea I had, and things are different now with the coven and tomorrow. I know, that's why I want to. I hold my hand surely. I hold his hand surely now. I know exactly what I want. Besides, not everything's different. We're still here. I still feel the same way about you. I do too. He clasps my hand and swallows. Michaela. So, where were we going to go? I ask, body humming with excitement and nerves. Cray flushes and leads me out of the darkened union out across the car park, where frost is forming on the wet tarmac. The circle stays around us, shielding us. There's a sweeping gravel path up the little hill that overlooks the lake. From that point, I can see the dark water below reflecting the stars, and the dark blue of the sky as the sun starts to rise. Cray takes off his jacket, and in one wave, transforms it into a thick black blanket, laying out on the grass. He puts the crystal on the blanket, and when we sit down, I can feel warmth filling the circle that's still humming around us. Same glamour as the statue, just a bit weaker, he says, reaching out and touching my face. 
You look so beautiful. Glamour as always, I say. Without the glamour, Michaela. I kiss him, my face burning at the compliment. We press our bodies together, lying out on the blanket in the warmth of the circle. I touch him all over, stroking his back in the way I've learned he likes, kissing his neck in the soft place where it meets his shoulder. Bit by bit, we take off each other's clothes and put our hands on each other. I've never seen anything as perfect as his body in the starlight, and when he kisses his way down my body, hands warming my belly, I feel my heart clench and my skin flush. I still can't believe he wants me, that he loves me. Afterwards, wrapped in his arms, I listen to the birds slowly waking up in the bare trees by the lake. It's stupid, but I feel older, grown up. Not because Cray and I have done it, but because I've made my choice. Today isn't the day I run back to my parents. It's the day I'll fight for my friends, for myself. It's the first day that I've started out knowing who I am. Chapter 21. We don't go back to Wayward. Instead, we glamour our clothes back to normal jeans and hoodies and catch the bus into town. I don't let go of Cray's hand, even when we get off the bus and have to wait in the finger-shredding cold for another one. It takes us two hours to reach Bristol, and when we leave the station, Cray leads the way through the town centre. There are lights blinking and Christmas songs blaring from every shop. The streets overcrowded with people struggling along, carrying huge brown Primark bags. Cray takes me over a complicated crossing of busy roads and up an uneven street to a grassy square with big Georgian houses around it. It'd be like a tiny piece of bath if it wasn't for the off-and-on blare of sirens in the distance. Why did Sophia even tell you where this place was? I ask walking beside him across the square. When we got our first new member after Nara, Finch, I think, Sophia decided we needed a second location, you know, spread the coven's influence. She had us move some things over here, candles, some books we were done with. I brought them over here. We've stopped in front of the last house at the end of the left-hand row. Beside it is a warehouse with a corrugated roof. Huge white letters have been painted on one side. I don't give a damn, I don't give a fuck. The house is one of those metal fences they have at festivals put up all around it. Behind that is another lot of metal fences, laid over the steps down to the house's basement. There are bottles and cans littering the ground around the house, rusting with their labels peeling off. The windows of the house are shuttered with metal gratings, the ones on the ground floor sprayed over in purple and silver. The stone is marked with thick trails of green slime, and it's all blackened from the pollution, while all the other buildings have been sandblasted blonde again. In there, I ask. Yeah. There's a way in round the back, or at least there was a few years ago. How do we get around there? This way. He leads me around to the side where there's a narrow gravel path littered with cans. As we squeeze down it, I step on a VK bottle and it bursts under my boot. We crunch glass and rubble until we're behind the building, where Crane kneels on the wet grass and starts moving mossy bricks away from the tiny basement window beside the back stairs. I look across the overgrown swatch of garden. Lots of tall dead grass bent over with the weight of past weeks of rain. There. Cray pushes the last of the bricks aside, revealing the only unshuttered window. There's no glass in it, and it's only about a foot square. I'll go in first. Cray gets his legs through and shuffles backwards until he can lower himself to the floor. I hear a bit of scraping and crunching, like he's hit something and jostled it across the floor. All right? Yeah, come down. I get down on the wet ground and shuffle back towards the window, worried that Cray will see the light being blocked out by my bum. I hit the floor and stumble, kicking a big chunk of wood across the floor. It's dark everywhere, apart from directly under the window, and the floor is slippery with God knows what. There's a door over here, Cray says. Should be... Yeah, here it is. I follow his voice, and he pushes open the door with his shoulder, shoving the damp wood out of the frame. It stinks in here, I mutter, following him into the dark corridor, and I can't see a sodding thing. Something sparks a few metres away and I jump. 
It's Cray, holding up a lighter and two pillar candles. Left these here last time. They didn't like they'd been touched. In the silence that chases his words, I listen hard for any signs of life, but all I hear is distant traffic and the cooing of pigeons overhead. Cray hands me a lit candle and I peer around at the walls, where the paper is sloughing off and the black mould has bloomed in huge circles across what remains. Looks a lot worse than wayward, I say, inching further up the corridor. Let's have a look down here before we chance the stairs. Right behind you, Cray says. We go through all the downstairs rooms and find only more signs that the house is uninhabitable. The carpet is squelchy with leaking water. There's green goo oozing in under one of the windows and everywhere there's the rank smell of mould and stagnant water. We arrive back at the stairs, our candles burning tiny pinpricks in the darkness, sending huge distorted shadows over the walls. I'll go up first, I say. You stay here. No way. If I fall through, you're going to have to get help. If we both go up, we might both get hurt. Cray sighs, but stands aside so that I can go upstairs. Each step creaks alarmingly, and a couple of times I feel the wooden tread start to give, but I make it to the top without incident. All the doors on the landing are closed, and there's even less light here than there was downstairs. I can see my breath in the light from the candle. Michaela? I'm fine, I call back. Come up. I turn, and the light from the candle catches on something silver. A symbol sprayed on one of the doors. It's not one I recognise, but then again my knowledge is far from complete. Shit, my candle's gone out. Hang on, I'm going back for the lighter, Cray shouts. Okay. I move towards the door. Anyone in the house would have heard us moving around by now. The place really is deserted, so why is my skin crawling? I twist the door handle and push it open, holding my breath as I raise the candle to get a better look at what's inside. I don't know what I'm expecting. A circle set up with ritual ingredients, a secret grimoire, perhaps even the belongings of all those missing witches. I'm not expecting the huddled shapes of five bodies to be lying in a row on the floor. I'm not expecting one of them to be Cray. A scream rips its way out of me and into the cold, rank air. I cover my mouth with my hand, choking off the noise as I take an involuntary step towards the bodies on the floor, towards Cray's body. It's really him. There are his clothes, the same ones he was wearing when we met, his hands in their dark green mittens, his straight black hair, his... I bring the candle closer to his face and grip my mouth tighter with my palm. His eyes. He doesn't have eyes. Just crystals. The same kind of black crystal Sophia uses at her ritual. His face is flat, the features drawn on with ink. It's a mannequin. A life-size doll made of old clothes. I look at the others, recognising Ilex by his sneering mouth. Chronicle by the red wig. Nara has a headscarf and there are moles drawn on the pale fabric of her face. Campion's face is drawn in white chalk on brown felt, her university hoodie stained and mouldering. A hand grabs my shoulder and I scream, dropping my candle and throwing myself to one side to fight it off. Michaela, what? Cray trails off, looking down at the body on the floor. The copy of him made of scrap cloth. What the hell is that? I don't need to inhale the scents of herbs and incense to know. I've got one tucked in my pocket after all. A fetch, I say, getting slowly to my feet. They're all fetches. Cray shakes his head. Why? Why would someone need to make them look like... I don't know. He kneels down by his double and looks at it more closely. I don't like this. It's so... It's weird. I remember creating my fetch, the one to bring me knowledge and wisdom. A cloth body to house the spirit that I created to serve my goal. I feel sick. Cray, you said about Finch. About all the others. Did you find them like you found me? Um, some of them, Cray says, frowning. Me, or Nara, or Ilex, or... No, he says, stopping. You can't be thinking that. 
You're a fetch. The words catch in my throat. You're her fetch. Michaela. He gets up and comes towards me, but I step back, holding my arms up. Michaela, don't be ridiculous. Think about it. Think about all the people you found for her. About the ritual she uses to control you. She made you. She created you so you'd bring her more people. That's why you're still in Bath. That's why none of you were sent here. Cray shakes his head. It's not possible. To do that would take power, a huge amount of power, Michaela. Your fetch is just energy. It's not a physical being. You're speaking to me. You've touched me. I'm right here. I'm not a fetch. Whatever threw me away from my parents was powerful, I say. And when I was on the astral, when I looked at all of you, you all had this aura. I thought it was because you were witches, but what if it's because you're not real? But I can do magic, Cray argues. Who'd believe in magic if they couldn't see it? How could you convince people, I say. Stop it. I don't want it to be true, I shout back. But why else would these things be here? What other possible reason could she have for making them? Cray turns to the mannequin on the floor that wears his clothes. He kneels down, takes the lighter out of his pocket and holds it to the mitten on its hand. Cray, I need to see, he says, striking the light and holding the flame to the wall. I hold my breath, wishing like anything that nothing will happen. Cray shouts and drops the lighter, cradling his hand, the hand that hadn't been holding the lighter. He holds his fingers up. They're burnt, red and raw. Oh my God. He stares at his own hand in horror. I'm not, I'm not real, am I? Cray. He looks at me and all I want to do is put my arms around him, but I can't force myself to move. He's not real. I love him. I've trusted in him more than I have in anyone. I've given him my virginity and he's a fetch. Sophia's puppet. Michaela, I'm so sorry. You didn't know. How the hell could you have known? I look at the other four bodies. None of you know. She did this. Cray stands up. She made us. We, we have to stop her. Whatever she's using us for, it has to stop today. But what if... I can't finish the sentence. But Cray already knows what happens to a fetch when it's no longer needed. It's that or keep helping her to trap people. If they're not here, if there is no other coven, she must have done something with them. My stomach revolts, bile climbing my throat. We haven't found any bodies, yet. But there are more rooms we haven't been inside of. My mind is reeling. I can hardly look at Cray. Every time I do, it feels like the bottom is falling out of everything. He looks so real. If I hadn't seen his fingers blistering with my own eyes, I'd never believe he was the result of a spell. You should check the other rooms, he says, as if reading my mind. We don't know what else she's hiding. What are you going to do? I just need to stay here for a second and process this. Truthfully, the only thing I want is to get out of the room and away from the fetches. I nod and skirt the bodies on the floor, heading back out onto the landing. All the shock and fear has cushioned my mind. It feels like I'm seeing everything from really far away. Maybe that's what it's supposed to feel like when you find out your boyfriend is an enchantment come to life. I try doors blindly. The first two are swollen shut with damp, but the last opens easily into a smaller room with a cupboard, like a medicine cabinet mounted on the wall. Aside from that, the room is empty. But there's a feeling in the air, a kind of charge, like there's just been a massive row. I go to the cupboard and reach for the little handle. My fingers prickle with energy. It makes the hair on my arms stand on end. There's a book inside the cupboard, and it falls out as I open the door. A plain, dark blue exercise book, which was not what I was expecting. On a shelf in the cabinet, there's a glass jar. It's just a normal, large jam jar, but the side of it makes me feel sick. It's full of blood.
The sudden awareness that I'm looking at something that I was never meant to see makes my neck prickle with unease. I pick up the book and open it to the first page. On it is a list of words. Abaddon, Azeroth, Azazel, Balaam, all the way down to Tchor, Tezcatlipoca, Thamuz, Tunrida, Typhon, Yatsin, Yama, and Yenlo Wang, on and on through the alphabet. Pages taken up with nonsense words. The heading on the first page is the only thing that makes the strange gibberish make any kind of sense. The Forty Shades. A list of forty shades. I know from a stupid film I saw ages ago that Tezcatlipoca is a Mexican god, and Astaroth might be from the Bible. It definitely sounds familiar. I turn more pages. There are spells written down, but they aren't vague conjurations like the glamours and charms that the others have taught me. One of them is titled To Call on the Dead, another to raise a black shuck dog. I stop on one particular spell, to speak with the voice of another. My heart punches the inside of my chest as I read. The spell requires a small object be placed near the person you are attempting to deceive, while the witch speaks into another. Almost identical objects. Two stones, a pair of bird skulls, two acorns. I remember the acorn that fell from the coin return slot of the payphone I used to call my mum. Had Sophia used the spell on me? Why? To make me think that I was speaking to my mum when I wasn't. To convince me that I wasn't welcome home. Feeling cold, I turn another page. There's a list of numbers with words next to them. One, Finch. Two, Gossamer. Three, Blaze. Finch. The name of the first witch to come to the Bristol Coven. I look down the list, reading the random words that must be the names of other witches, until I reach the bottom. Thirty-nine, White Heart. Forty, Stone. My name. My craft name. The last one on the list. I look at it for a long time and wonder what the hell it means. Forty names, forty shades. There are more pages and I scan them with growing fear. The forty shades are mentioned again. The forty grant their power in exchange for the sacrifices, one for each. The power they have left behind can be summoned, bound with the power of the witches and granted to the caster. Forty sacrifices. I look at my name, the last name on that list. I look again at the jar of blood. This is what Cray and the others were created for. That blood, I'm willing to bet, has been collected from every sacrifice. Their personal power, their life force. I drop the book and tumble away from the altar, intent on running downstairs and out into the open, all the way home to my parents, away from shades and Cray and witchcraft, away from all of it. I slam into Sophia instead, or at least into the wall of energy that surrounds Sophia. There's a sound like a hive of angry bees in my ears, a sound that's sickeningly familiar. I hit the floor and the breath is knocked out of me, leaving me gasping, clutching at my chest which feels bruised and hollowed out. Sophia comes over to look down at me. I never thought you'd be the one to work it out, she says. Smarter witches have been through here, and not one of them ever guessed. I suck in air and try to get to my feet, but I'm pinned to the ground by her energy. She smiles thinly and drops something onto the floor next to me. I flinch and close my eyes for a second before I dare look. It's a ball of fabric, spewing sawdust. There's a piece of black crystal winking at me in the tiny bit of light let in by the cracks in the window grill. I recoil. Cray, they get so troublesome if you keep them around long enough, Sophia says. You can't trust a fetch that starts trying to keep things for itself. Don't worry, he didn't feel a thing. Let me go, I say, my voice cracking, tears blinding me. I can't, Sophia says, taking a knife, the same knife from my initiation ceremony from within her velvet drapery. 
I need you. You saw the book. You know I need forty witches to make this work. She tests the blade's sharpness with her thumb. I did try it with ordinary runaways, but it wasn't enough. The forty need powerful blood. Witches' blood. Do you know how long it's taken me to find and initiate people with even the smallest talent for the craft? I thought I'd be stuck in that awful house for years. She's officially crazy. Not the harmless witchy crazy that I'd seen in everyone when I'd arrived, but the scary murderous kind of crazy that makes your skin crawl. She's going to kill me and sacrifice my blood to a horde of shades. She killed crying and she's not even sorry. I can tell just from looking at her that she doesn't feel anything. Why would you do this? All this for a spirit that doesn't even want sacrifices. Campion said, Campion says there are no good and evil gods or goddesses, just energy and good or bad witches, Sophia says, rolling her eyes. In new age hippie terms, yes, that's true. But further than that, all those devils and demons and monsters were based on actual beings, beings that came from the astral into our world, darker things than man-made gods. She kneels beside me and leans very close to me, with her face only an inch from mine. I can see beneath the layer of makeup plastered onto her skin. Her face is old somehow, like badly preserved leather or rawhide. She smells like copper and burning hair. Where do you think I came from? She whispers. Where do you think the magic came from? I mean, if it was that easy, don't you think everyone would be doing it? No, there has to be a spark to get the fire going. And all those gods and demons and sprites, all those stories of human men and women cavorting with powerful beings, bearing half-blood children that married mortals and had quarter immortals, and on and on. You might be 99% boring, useless human, but there's a tiny bit of something inside you, stone. My body shudders. There's something not right about her. Aside from the murderous ranch she's spewing, there's something inhuman about her eyes. Sophia, she, it, shakes her head slowly from side to side. Sophia hasn't been around for quite a while, I'm afraid. She sits up and taps the knife against my chest, making me jump. Where would I be without bored, stupid teenagers messing around on the astral? No. Sophia's parents ignored her and she decided to experiment with some magic to get their attention, just like all those before her who helped my family cross over. She didn't know what she was doing. I should scream. I should try and remember a spell, anything to get away from this thing that's in front of me. But I know it's useless. She would stop me, kill me, and Cray's dead. Still, there's a tiny part of me that wants to know. What's the part of me that she wants? Is she telling the truth, that I'm a distant descendant of a creature like her, a god from another plane? The forty. The others like me that have come to this place. Thanks to the unwary and the foolish. Satan, Kolsu, Javits, Ravan. They all came before me. In some parts of the world they ruled. They were feared and worshipped. Before they were tricked or forced back or trapped. Leaving illegitimate spawn behind. And you're going to bring them back. I can't believe I'm talking to a shade. Some kind of god. My only hope is to keep it talking. Maybe distract it. Even though Cray is gone, even though there is no hope, I know I still have to fight. I have to try. Sophia's mouth pulls into an ugly sneer. They were stupid, foolish, and they paid the price. No, I'm not bringing them back. I have the life forces of 40 of my own witches, enough power to last 40 human lifetimes, lifetimes of being worshipped, growing stronger. My brothers and sisters will rot on our plane, and I will rule this one with the power of their descendants. She clasps a hand around my neck, cutting off my air and placing the knife against my pulse. 
story time's over stone my eyes prickle with panicked tears i've forgotten everything i've learned about magic about defending myself i just ball up all the energy in my body into one big bright red punch and launch it at sophia she staggers backwards and as she does so the knife skitters away i've just scrambled to my feet when sophia dives at me we crash to the floor and she knocks my head against the board once twice my vision swimming i'm surprised that she isn't stronger but then again Whatever's possessing her is using her muscles, her body, to attack me. Her grasping hand finds my throat again. She raises her other hand to catch the knife as it flies back to her. The blade comes swinging down towards my heart. I act on instinct, grabbing her hand and turning the knife away from me, towards her. There's a horrible, thick, wet feeling that goes up my arm. Blood, hot and wet on my hand. Then she falls off of me onto the floor. I let go of the knife, which goes with her, stuck straight into her stomach. Sophia gurgles. Blood falls from her mouth onto the dusty floor. I scramble up and look down at her helplessly. What the fuck have I done? There's blood all over my hands, dripping from my fingers. It's flooding out onto the floor, faster than I would have thought possible. I take a shaky step away from the body. Sophia's eyes open and she lunges for my foot, grabbing me and sending me sprawling, screaming into the pool of blood. Bitch! She spits blood, her eyes lifeless, her face moving like a puppet's. Her hands are like claws as she pulls herself up my struggling body, pausing only to wrench the knife out of her belly. I scream and struggle, but the knife sinks into my chest, sending pain through every nerve. Sophia, or the thing that's wearing her corpse, crows in triumph, grabbing the jar from the dusty floor. She twists the lid off and holds it up. Try and hold on. You should at least live to see this, she says. My body is shaking, my fingers going cold. I wonder if this is me going into shock. The knife moves every time I breathe and hurts all over again. I can hardly think. Sophia is moving the jar to my side to gather my blood. I swipe out with my cold hand. The jar spills. Sophia roars and I grab the slick glass, my bloody fingers dripping as I do the only thing I can do to save my life. My only choices are death or finishing the ritual that Sophia's demon has killed for. Pinned to the floor, I bring the jar of blood to my lips and take a drink. The congealed blood flows into my mouth, pouring across my cheek and into my hair, up my nose and making me choke. I gag and cough. Sophia's hand closes around my throat and I hear her screaming. The knife is wrenched from my flesh and I feel it slice into me again, again. The ceiling above dissolves into shadow. Sophia's white, furious face is screaming over mine, its dark mouth open, ready to swallow me whole. Then it is gone. I sit up and see Sophia in a huddle on the floor, her body thrown there like a rag doll. I can't get up. Even sitting is agonising. Sophia, blood smeared over her face, gapes at me. No, she says faintly, and I swear I can see another set of jaws behind her teeth, another mouth in the darkness, open in dismay. No! I raise my blood-covered hand, sagging to one side without its support. There's something scorching in my chest, like a ball of coals all burning white hot. The heat is too much. It shoots down my arm and into my hand, like I'm burning up and frying in my own skin. Only it's Sophia that turns to ash. Her hair curls like worms on a hot plate. The smell of singeing fills the room. Her skin flutters in white ashy flakes, the muscle underneath charring and turning to powder, her bones crumbling like burning twigs. I see claws, tendrils of thick black matter, rivulets of oil trying to escape from her mouth, her eyes. As her body falls to the floor in embers and ash, the blackness bursts free, spilling over the floor and running straight for me. I don't think. Just hold my arm up, and when the living oil leaps for me, it stops in midair. 
held there by a wall of crackling white energy, so bright it hurts for me to look at it. The blackness, the shade that lived inside Sophia, cracks apart as the light forces its way through, evaporating into the air and leaving behind the smell of rotting meat and fresh blood. I fall back as the light diminishes. The heat is gone, my body exhausted. I can't feel my wounds, my mouth and nose are full of old blood. I roll weakly onto my stomach and cough until I vomit over the floor. Thank you for listening to this uncharacteristically long episode of me reading Wayward. Uh, apparently, as I drew towards the end of this book, my chapters just became very lengthy. Um, so apologies for that. I do hope you've enjoyed the dramatic turn that the story has taken and that you will tune in for the next instalment to find out what on earth is going on and what's going to happen to Michaela now. Please remember to rate and review the podcast and remember that you can also rate and review the book over on Goodreads as well. I'll see you in the next one. Bye!